Hello and welcome to this special end of year edition of Nudge. Today we'll be looking back at five of the best insights shared on the show this year. You'll learn why short-term goals might hinder your team in 2021, how to make sure your business is growing and not shrinking, and tactics to beat the burnout epidemic. Before I get started, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to everyone who has tuned in this year. Nudge has been live for about a year and a half now, and there are several thousand of you who tune in every week to listen. This year, Nudge has topped the marketing charts on Apple in Ireland, Great Britain and Australia, and received 40 wonderful five-star reviews. None of this would have been possible without you, so thank you. I really appreciate it. In 2021, you can expect more of the same from Nudge. I'll be continuing the bi-weekly releases with even more incredible guests from best-selling authors, award-winning marketers, and awe-inspiring behavioral science practitioners. To make sure you don't miss any of those shows, hit subscribe on your podcast player and sign up to the Nudge mailing list, the link to which is in the show notes. Anyway, let's get on with the show. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Towards the start of the year, I spoke to former Twitter VP, now best-selling author Bruce Daisley, about the burnout epidemic. It's the idea that workers today are facing more stress, more hours and more burnout than ever before. This segment was recorded pre-COVID, but it's even more pertinent today. Take a listen. Yeah, probably the, the number one thing that anyone who looks at the modern workplace would observe right now is there's something of a burnout epidemic going on. And this is, I think, a direct consequence of the fact that we've systematized a new way of working in the last 10, 15 years. The one thing that has happened in the last few years is that the average working day has gone up. The average working day used to be seven and a half hours a day, and it's now gone up to nine and a half hours a day, based on a few different measures of it. And that directly has an impact because when people are working 50 hours a week, it might seem like, you know, it's it's sort of 24% increase, whatever, but it, it might seem like a, a small increase, 
In fact, in terms of our energy levels, in terms of the way that work imposes itself on our identity, it's a really substantial shift. And so one of the things that we've seen over the last few years is that work has become far more part of our identity than it ever was in history. The the combination of us working longer, this relentless focus on needing to be achieving more than we did last year, um, other economic factors like, you know, the, the tragedy that housing is now so unaffordable for so many people, all these things combine to us giving far more headspace to our jobs and our professions than we ever did in history. And it's directly having a toll on us as individuals. We're feeling exhausted. We're feeling spent. By by some estimations, half of the modern workforce are in a state of burnout. And all of it is unhealthy. I think workers' identity is unhealthy. I think relentlessly thinking about our jobs is unhealthy. It seems that when we look into the evidence for it, the more we think about our jobs, the less able we're, we're able to achieve that degree of detachment that allows us to think of creative ideas. And overall, it just makes the experience of work for so many of us feel hollow and depressing. You know, we, we find ourselves thinking, how many more years have I got of this? Bruce explains that we're working more hours, we're unable to disconnect and we're far more stressed. This has only been amplified since COVID. Research commissioned by the Office Group found that 50% of employees have worked more hours since the coronavirus restrictions have been in place. On average, home workers have done an extra seven days work over the past five months. Heading into 2021, it's a good time to stop some of the bad habits that lead to burnout. Bruce shares many tips in his book, The Joy of Work, but here are three I'll be trying next year. Firstly, limiting the amount you work to 40 hours per week. Now, there is no evidence to suggest that working more hours equals more output. In fact, studies suggest the opposite is true. Working longer hours can actually reduce your creativity and output, so limit the amount you work down to those 40 hours per week. Next is reclaiming your lunch break. Working through the lunch break doesn't give us the time we need to de-stress. Getting away from the desk for a walk, a chance to read or just some time alone can really help. And finally, take a digital Sabbath. Tech has, in a way, been a lifesaver during COVID, allowing us to stay connected while we're apart. But it's come at a cost. Many of us feel more addicted to our screens than ever before. Next year, I'll be testing out turning off my notifications, removing work email from my phone and spending decent chunks of time away from the screen to beat this addiction. So tip number one is to find ways to beat the burnout. But let's move on to tips that are perhaps a little bit more relevant to marketers. Joel Kleck is the owner of Business Casual Copywriting. He joined me on the show earlier this year to talk about how important it is to understand your target audience and to spend time learning their pain points even when you're under intense time pressure. Here's Joel giving a great example of how he applied this while working with HubSpot. So to set the stage for the HubSpot project, it's important you understand that from the get-go, we were under an insane deadline. Uh, HubSpot was overhauling this massive marketing site, a huge change in positioning. And we had, I think, under two months to do the entire site. And so the first lesson and takeaway is when you have time constraints, you need to be ruthless about the research process. You don't abandon it. You never jump straight to production. That's suicide. 
but you have to be ruthless about where you focus. And so the first thing we did with HubSpot is we needed to get into the heads of customers. Before we started swinging a hammer trying to fix what was broken, we needed to understand what was working. And then we needed to understand what wasn't working. Because if we don't know what's working today, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We kill things that are actually contributing to conversion. So we had to be ruthless with the research. And there's a small subset of the things we'd normally do that we did because we pinned them as mission critical. The first was surveying customers. The reason you want to survey customers for a copywriting project of all things is because it allows you to get their feedback in their own language at scale. So we structured those surveys in a BDA format before, during, and after. What was life like before using HubSpot? What drove you to look for a solution like HubSpot? Uh, why did you choose HubSpot over other alternatives? Then the D for during. So what was that experience like? What surprised or confused you about that process? And then the after. So what results did you see because of HubSpot? How, what has HubSpot made possible for you? And so in capturing that feedback at scale, not only did we get a sense of the language customers used to talk about it and what these pain points, anxieties, and hesitations even were, but we got a really good way of quantifying that. We could look and analyze trends and themes. We could tabulate which of these things was coming up most often. So when we looked at, say, the CRM or the marketing tool or the sales tool, we could look at the benefits spoken about most frequently or the desired outcomes communicated most frequently. And now we had a good barometer for not only what to say and how to say it, but what priority we should be giving things on the page. Uh, we got the research we needed in a short amount of time, and we hit the deadline. We got the site live. We got a fantastic result on the other side. So copy can't take all the credit. That should be obvious by now. But site-wide conversions nearly doubled for HubSpot. Inbound demo requests increased by 35%. I believe inbound call volume increased by 27%. For a company like HubSpot, that's a big deal. And I think we can pin a lot of that success down to one line that I sort of alluded to earlier was HubSpot offers a suite of tools that are powerful alone, but better together. And just by introducing that common playing ground, that common ground to help people anchor in, okay, it's a suite of tools, they're powerful alone, better together, we completely reshaped the conversation. So now they had a better picture of what each tool could do for them, how they synced up and connected. And as a result, one of the lesser pointed to stats, but was equally important, is the customer support team saw a big drop in support requests and saw a big drop in the number of people asking those types of questions. Despite intense time pressure, Joel didn't start making changes straight away on the website. He resisted the temptation to start A-B testing based on his own gut instincts and ideas. Instead, he took the time to survey customers. All too many marketers skip this step, heading straight to solutions before understanding the target audience. Doing so will mean you're doomed to fail because you won't answer their needs and you'll be taking shots in the dark. What I loved about Joel's example is how he asked customers questions. His BDA format meant he didn't ask what customers wanted on the site or how HubSpot could make their experience better. These questions never lead to good results as customers aren't great at predicting what they want. Instead, he asked, what was life like before HubSpot? What drove you to choose HubSpot? What confused you when buying HubSpot? Asking customers questions about their experience rather than their opinions allowed Joel to accurately understand where the website was going wrong. 
After all, customers are notoriously bad at predicting what they need. Rory Sutherland has a great example of this from his book, Alchemy. Researchers wanted to see what would encourage donors to give more money to charities in their mail-out letters. When they asked donors, the number one suggestion to increase donations was to add information about gift aid, a UK tax incentive which adds 20% to every donation. Participants in the survey said that this information would help them understand what gift aid is and would mean they'd be more likely to use it, thereby making their donation 20% larger. That's what participants said. Turns out, this was an awful suggestion. They tested it and it actually reduced donations 30% compared to the control. The additional information made the letter less likely to be read and turned off donors. Asking donors what they wanted badly failed. However, understanding what donors were experiencing as they opened the letter led to far better improvements. For example, some donors spoke about how the paper used for the letter felt light and low quality. So, the team tested out using high quality paper in the letters and it worked. It increased donations 10% compared to the control. It's so important that you spend time understanding your customers and ask the right questions so you can make improvements that really work. Now let's move on to tip number three. To introduce this tip, I'll share a recording from an episode with Rand Fishkin, founder of Moz and SparkToro. Rand talked to me at length about the problems with growth hacking. He explained how constantly making tweaks and iterations to grow at all costs with no clear strategy might lead to small-term wins, but will ultimately harm long-term growth. His solution is the marketing flywheel. Here's Rand talking through the idea. All right. So when you are faced with building a marketing practice, a sustainable marketing practice inside an organization as, a, as an agency or consultant or, or in-house, you kind of have these, these two choices of models. And I think that the default one, unfortunately, is I'm going to invest in marketing channels and tactics that look like they might have positive ROI and reach my customers. And very often that is, let me buy ads on Google and Facebook. And hopefully I earn a positive return and then I take the profits from those dollars and they go back into growing my business, which, can then, which I can then use to grow my marketing. A far better methodology, which is, which is the concept of a, a flywheel, right? Instead of pushing a boulder up a linear hill where every, you know, every bit of progress that you make is, costs you the same amount of work or effort or dollars, the idea behind a flywheel is that it scales with decreasing friction. Right? You turn the flywheel once, and now inertia is helping you to push it a little bit more again. And the second time you push it, it's easier than the first, and the third time is easier than the second, and the fourth time, and the 500th time is, is shockingly easy compared to the first, right? So you're getting more value out every time you put the same input in. And I, I think one of the best ways for me to explain it is to give an example. So I'll give you the example from my old company, Moz, since we've, we've talked about that a little bit. So... At Moz, in the early years, I blogged five nights a week. You can go back and read those posts. They are still on the website. They are not good. They, they, are, they are poorly written. They, I'm not really sure who they were helping or how much. Uh, you can sort of feel the desperation of an early 20s kid trying to be you know, influential in his, in his aspiring field. But what happened over time, right, over the course of a few years... I got better at blogging. 
I got a bigger and bigger audience each time I wrote a post, right? More people would subscribe, more people would follow the RSS feed and subscribe to the email list. I would get some links to my blog posts if they were good ones, which means that Google uh, thought my authority in, in Google's rankings was higher. And so every time I published again, those new posts would rank a little bit better. And eventually, right, fast forward five, six years from say 2003 to about 2009, and every post I produced was read by thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. Almost every single one ranked well in Google and earned traffic from search engines. As social networks became popularized, they started earning traffic from social networks. People started following Moz's brand and me on social media. And I didn't have to do much, right? In those early days, if I wanted to post to get any traction, I would try and email some people. I'd go to some web forums and SEO, places where SEO discussions were happening on the web and I'd share it and I'd ask for feedback and I'd try and get eyeballs on it. And if I wanted to get a hundred times the amount of value that I got from a post in 2009 versus, versus 2004, all I had to do was hit publish. The idea here isn't new. We've spoken a lot on the podcast about how important it is to prioritise long-term strategy over short-term wins. Not doing so can have devastating results. A great example of this comes from Freakonomics author Stephen Levitt. He talks through how implementing quick wins and growth hacks can have long-term devastating impacts. Mexico City has, for many years, suffered from dreadful traffic jams. The pollution is horrendous, it's hard to get anywhere, so out of desperation, the government came up with a new law to quickly solve the problem. The new law meant that drivers would have to leave their cars at home on one workday each week, with the particular day determined by the car's license plate number, so pretty much at random. The hope was that fewer cars would clog the road because of this law, and more people would use public transport on that one day. So did this quick win have an overnight success? No. Turns out the plan led to more cars in circulation. Why? Well, in order to skirt around the license plate ban, a lot of people went out and bought a second car with a different number plate, many of which were older, cheaper gas guzzlers only making the problem worse. Rather than focus on a long-term plan to reduce traffic with better infrastructure and public transport, the government opted for a growth hack that ultimately made the problem worse. So be aware of any short-term approaches attempting to solve major problems and make sure you test your ideas before implementing them. This leads nicely onto the next tip, making sure you test your work. Richard Chataway, author of Behaviour Business, joined me on the show early in the year to talk about how to apply nudges and behaviour science effectively in your business. In order to apply it, you don't need to have a PhD in behavioural science, I think is a really critical point. Um, and, you know, and, and I don't, you know, I've, I've, I'm very clear at the, the beginning of the book to say um, that, you know, I'm a practitioner and, and I've learned on the job, if you like, in terms of, you know, what I was just describing with my, my background in particularly in government. You know, the, the critical thing really is, is for a business to apply um, behavioural science successfully is one to be to be comfortable with that, um, what I call test tube behaviours, which is that kind of a bit or willingness to test and to learn and to uh you know to accept that one of the critical aspects of experimentation and testing and learning and, and a scientific approach is that some things won't work 
that you will test some things that don't work and that, and that fail. But that's not a bad thing. That's, you know, those insights and, and what you learn from that is as important as the things that do work because um, you know you should never do those things or or it will give you some insight that might unlock another another opportunity. Um, and that's one, one critical aspect to it. I think the other is obviously, you know, is making sure that you are using the most, the best insights and understanding of the science um, and whether that's a case of, you know, you hire people who have that background um, to inform your business. One one interesting trend we're seeing in the last few years is that more and more um, larger global corporates are creating roles like chief behavioral officer or, or or hiring people who have that background. You know, one thing I was very I was very conscious of when writing the book is that, you know, a lot of the examples I use are from, you know, the, the fangs, for example. So Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. And my reason for doing that is to say these businesses have been hugely successful in the 21st century because of the way that they understand, use and apply behavioral science as much as it, if not more so, as their technological innovation. But I I was very conscious when writing the book of, of wanting to write it in a way where if you are a sole trader or a small business owner or, or, you know, you don't have access to all the world's leading computer science uh, PhDs, as, as Google does, that you can still apply the insights from that. As Richard says, you don't need a PhD to set up effective tests. Instead, just follow three steps. Start by defining the problem. It could be car congestion in Mexico or a lack of conversion on HubSpot's website. Next, set out your hypothesis. What do you think will happen if you solve this problem? This part is vital. Your hypothesis will let you measure whether or not your test was a success. Then finally, run your solution against the control in an AB or multivariant test. Check to see if your solution is achieving your hypothesis or not. Working through tests like this will make sure you achieve real results quickly and you don't fall for the same mistakes that Rand explained earlier. But when you're planning these tests and working towards your next big project, you've got to be aware of the planning fallacy. Now, this is the idea that we constantly underestimate how long it takes us to do something, meaning we rarely give ourselves enough time and resource to get major projects done. Addressing and conquering the planning fallacy is the final tip for 2021. And I'll hand over to Melina Palmer, host of the Brainy Business Podcast, to talk through this. One of the big roots, the problems with planning fallacy is because we have an optimism bias. We look at ourselves and think we're going to be better, faster, stronger, smarter, more efficient than we were yesterday or a year ago or whatever it is for no real reason that we should believe that, but our brains want to think that we're always going to be better than we were. So you are expecting that everything's going to go well and you completely forget about all these extrinsic things that happen. So the lunch breaks, the kids bugging you, the phone call that's going to come in, the other client that's going to have an email come in that you they have an emergency you need to help with, all these things that can happen you don't plan in when you're setting up your timelines of how long something is going to take. So you are eliminating those external things, which are inevitable. They always happen. And you're coming up with the most optimistic view of time, one that is unreasonable uh, for how long something is going to take you. Essentially, when you're setting goals, when you're putting together the dream of what you and your business can be, I can say, 
pretty much across the board, you're not thinking big enough. You could be so much more and do so many more amazing things than are going to come to mind for you based on your own circle of influence and what you've seen. If you set set your goals in, in the biggest possible way, you know, but when you're working on setting the tasks of what you're going to do to accomplish those goals, you need to get as minute as you possibly can. And you also need to limit those big goals. And so I tell my clients, you can't have more than three goals across life and business and health and whatever that is. You you just can't have more than three priorities because if you do, and this is where our brains, again, they make you think that if you don't have 10 things on the to-do list that you are failing in some way. But if you have 10 things and you never get any of them done and you constantly have the same 10 things on your list, why does that feel like you're accomplishing anything more when you're not really doing anything? Overcoming planning fallacy isn't easy, but Melina has some great tips. Start by limiting your goals to just three core things you want to achieve and then get as minute as possible when setting your tasks. So rather than trying to rebuild your website, set up paid ads and ship a new feature all in the first month of next year, focus your work on one core goal and make sure you've given yourself the time to test it and get it right. It is pretty much impossible to provide five tips that resonate for every marketer, so I've tried to keep these as broad as possible. We started with Bruce talking through the burnout epidemic and some strategies for staying stress-free. Then we heard Joel talk through some great questions to ask customers to understand their problems and pain points. Rand talked through why short-term growth hacks might not work, and Richard explained how to implement tests at your business. To finish off, Melina talked through the planning fallacy, providing some guidance for those in the process of planning for next year. Now that's all for today. Thank you so much for everyone who has listened to the show this year. If you have any feedback or want to let me know what you think of the show, send me an email at nudgepod at gmail.com. That's my personal email address and I'll answer any email you send to me on there. And if you've enjoyed the podcast this year, you could really do me a massive favor by leaving a review for the show on Apple Podcasts. That really helps Nudge get noticed and heard by more marketers. And if you don't listen on Apple, then please do share the podcast widely elsewhere. I really appreciate seeing Nudge listeners tweet, post and share the show online. Anyway, that is all for me today. I will be back in a few weeks with a cracking new episode of Nudge, so make sure you don't miss it. Thank you again for listening this year.